0: Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best
1: biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel. And, uh, oh boy. You know how last week you were like, oh, we need to, uh, take a break from all these big ecosystem ecology topics to talk about something fun. Um, I like big ecosystem ecology (laughs) topics. So that's what we are talking about today. We're talking about a savanna in North America.
0: Hey. Awesome. Is it Kansas? Uh, It occurs in Kansas. Oh. Okay. I'm excited. But first, we wanted to fill you in on a couple really cool things that are going on with grassland groupies and kind of legislature in the U.S. So sorry if you don't live in the U.S., but this is still really good stuff to know. One, grass and groupies did recently co-sign a letter to Congress uh, calling for the farm bill to be bulked up. And this was actually a coalition of 216 different conservation, like farmer, sportsmen, and wildlife groups across the U.S. that all signed this letter. And we're trying to call attention to the farm bill. And essentially, this gives farmers and ranchers money to try to do conservation work on their land. So it is extremely, extremely important. And currently, as it stands, is very, very underfunded. It's estimated that about 13.8 million acres every year is unmet currently, because there's just no funding to help these people. As many as 75% of qualified applicants for the Farm Bill Conservation Program are turned away each year. So that is a lot of people that want to do conservation work on their land and just can't because they're not getting money, which is unacceptable. (laughs) So we partnered up with uh, National Wildlife Federation, kind of started this, and they called for signatures and we signed it. You can find out more information on our Twitter, as well as National Wildlife Federation's Twitter, or you can simply Google Farmville National Wildlife Federation, and it should pop up, as well as the letter that we all signed.
1: Yeah, awesome. Just a brief note as well, with regards to legislation, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is back in both the House and the Senate now, and currently under review by committees in both of those places. Uh, I would encourage you to look up your representatives and if you're interested in supporting the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, uh, see if your senator is somebody who is on that committee or your representative and maybe give them a call or write them a letter or something to encourage their support. And uh, that's it. Lots of of stuff happening in this legislative session, (laughs) hopefully, for conservation. So that's pretty exciting. Yes. All right. And now I assume... We are ready to dive into our episode, and to begin our episode, I actually have a quote. <laughs> the Bellwin Conservancy in Minnesota. Savannas are special places, and it is not an exaggeration to say that all people are drawn to them in some way. When you think of sitting outside on a warm summer day, chances are that you picture yourself in a savanna, whether you know it or not. These sun dappled meadows overhung by majestic shade trees are so ingrained in us that we create them wherever we go. After all, our yards and parks with their turf lawns and shade trees are just man made savannas designed long ago to echo the natural article. And the savanna that we're talking about today is from North America, like I mentioned. It once stretched in a band basically along the edge of the Great Plains. Um, between the forested areas and the prairie areas in this band across the entire Midwest. Um, its range touched Canada, Illinois, Kansas, Texas, and it. this habitat also occurs in the Northwest and the Southeast United States. Um, it's also among the most imperiled ecosystems. <laughs> Big surprise. Uh-huh. Uh, and... This park-like habitat is marked by a really specific tree. This habitat is the oak savanna. Nice. Nicole's nodding because <laughs> uh, we both were inspired about learning more about this habitat mm-hmm. by the same person, one of our friends at Dick Arboretum. Shout out to Brad. <laughs> um, but yeah, today we're going to be talking specifically about the burr oak savanna and bur oaks themselves, and, uh, there's so much that I learned, Nicole. Yeah. I never saw myself talking about, um, trees on this podcast <laughs> in North America, unless it was maybe the cottonwood or something. Mm-hmm. But I'm beginning to have the opinion, um, that maybe we should rethink the sentinel of the prairie as including the baroque and not just the cottonwood tree. Uh, So, so cool. Also, I got enraged at one point. I can't wait. Let's go. Oh, gosh. So, so first thing we need to do, I think, is define a couple of these terms and habitats. The first, a savanna, which we've talked about before. Uh, Nicole, do you want to give us a brief savanna rundown? Grassland, but with trees. Yes. Up to 30% tree cover. Yes. So I'll read what I wrote down. A plant community where trees are a component, but their density is so low that it allows grasses and other forbs to become the actual dominance of the community. So grasses are the dominant form, but whatever trees are a component of that tends to dominate like our perception of the landscape. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, Another term is uh, the oak savanna. And... This habitat is where you have these like open grown oaks where basically they don't have any competition because they're spaced so broadly apart. And so uh, they end up growing out like super wide and super bulky. And if you picture like noteworthy trees um from like state records or something, usually those are these big open grown trees. So that tree form, the growth form, is how we characterize an oak savanna. It's where the oaks are so spread apart that they have these big, bulky, uh, tough guy attitudes. I don't know. I'll show you a picture of one. Aren't they pretty? It is a mighty oak. Mighty, mighty oak. Yeah, so the mighty oaks. (laughs) That's an oak savanna. Now, an oak woodland is another... A similar habitat type. The only difference is that here the the oaks are growing in a slightly more crowded situation, so each tree kind of shades its neighbor a little bit. The lower limbs of those trees usually don't get enough shade, so instead of growing like these nice big round beautiful uh, trees, these healthy woodlands have really tall straight trees without lower branches because they just don't get sunlight and die off and the top canopies are usually spread pretty wide and this is different from like a closed canopy forest Mm -hmm. it's still pretty open it would be considered kind of an open habitat type but it's not a savanna because the trees are uh, growing significantly closer together okay cool great (laughs) okay so in this habitat The dominant tree is usually the bur oak or another type of white oak, and it's a really cool habitat that has super high plant diversity because it has sun-loving prairie plants, because it's got, you know, the open grassland parts, and it has shade-tolerant woodland plants, and it also has unique savanna specialist species which is pretty cool. So it kind of touches every cornerstone and makes it like a really sought-after habitat type for a lot of animals Mm -hmm. and plants. Now, a little bit on the like sort of historic and modern extent of these habitats. It turns out oak savannas, This, and I'm talking specifically about the one in that band across the Midwest. So I'm leaving out the California and the Southwestern oak savannas here. We're just talking about the ones that border the Great Plains. This savanna predates humans. Mm-hmm. And we've actually got some pretty crazy estimations of like how fire has changed in the landscape. So fire frequency before humans was pretty low. It's estimated maybe once every 10 to 15 years. But in the 12,000 years <laughs> since humans arrived... Um The much more frequent fires in the landscape were almost entirely managed by those indigenous humans and became much more frequent. So before Europeans colonized the Americas, it's estimated that there were 12 million hectares of oak savanna throughout the Midwest. Oak woodlands? were just as prominent, if not more, by some estimations. But it's really hard to estimate the extent of them compared to oak savannas. So we don't really know for sure. Why is it easier to
0: find out the oak savanna habitat versus just the oak woodland
1: habitat? I don't know. Maybe it's because the oak savanna habitat was so uh, noticeably different it wasn't – there's there's lots of different woodlands that exist that are these sort of like open habitat types, and maybe they're dominated by oaks, or maybe they're dominated by oak hickories, or, you know, all sorts of other trees. But the oak savanna is a really unique environment. Okay. And I think that's probably why it was noteworthy, and maybe the records are just better for the land surveys that occurred. Yeah. Okay. Um, so presence or absence of tree. Nobody knew who, what, what kind of trees they were or noted what they oh, were. Oh, people knew what <laughs> kinds of trees they were. I just don't – we just have a hard time estimating the ex, the full extent of oak woodlands. Okay. Probably because they were also a little bit more spread out and less associated with the prairie necessarily. Yeah. Um, a lot of them were along rivers. And that's true of the savannas too. But yeah. Okay. Okay, so this is the. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm so sorry, what? so here here we do have some good estimations. Um, by 1986, when a report came out, which keep in mind, this is freaking 2021. That's almost 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I. <laughs> it just makes me like. Sick to my stomach to think about what the estimation might be now, 40 years later. But in 1986, it was estimated that less than 0.02% of that oak savanna remains. Wow. So yeah, imperiled. (laughs) (laughs) And that's actually a super interesting phenomenon and story and stuff so we're gonna like talk about what happened and like where did it go and how does succession work in these habitats and stuff so that'll be fun but um you know like every ecosystem it's a dynamic always changing thing and so when you remove certain parts of the ecosystem how does it change and what happens to the habitat oh it's gonna be fun nicole we're gonna talk about <laughs> all kinds of ecology <laughs> uh yeah So, um, as of 1995, oak savannas in the Midwest were identified as critically endangered ecosystems. Restoration of these habitats has become major management goals for public agencies and conservation organizations. There's an entire, uh... Organization just dedicated to Oak Savannah restoration and helping people identify remnants that exist and how to properly manage them and bring it back. Uh, it's it's kind of cool to see these efforts ongoing. There's so many people. I looked at, this, at a book. And I was looking at like the Amazon ratings on it and Mm -hmm. all of the ratings were people saying like, I live in Iowa and I'm so grateful for this book. I wish it had more step-by-step, you know, instructions. But like now I know I live on an oak savanna and I want to restore the (laughs) habitat. And it was like all people like that. It was so cool. So, yeah, people want to restore it. And like in general, these kind of like prairie forest transition zones that create savanna in this type of part of the world <laughs> are just generally unstable anyway. So it's not like, you know, un- I don't know. It makes sense why they've become so rare and endangered for a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, but yes. Okay. That's a little bit about the history of the habitat. We're going to dive into, for this episode, um, sort of an introduction to the bur oak and all of the plants and animals that depend on it and uh, some information about disturbances and how these habitats succeed from one habitat type to another. So for people who aren't, you know, uh, I don't know from a background of, of this sort of wildlife management, habitat management stuff, succession is the word we use to describe a habitat transitioning from one type like a prairie to another like a desert or something that would be considered succession because it's like multiple directions it's not like a progression or like a degression or something it's just succeeding to something else
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh there's a lot to say about that with regards to oak savannas so that's that's our plan today and uh we're gonna start by talking about these uh oak savannas and they're like little communities that they have <laughs> <laughs> okay so Rachel all,
0: yes Rachel is literally dancing in her seat right now
1: <laughs> this is this was like a it's all the things I like except for maybe some paleo stuff yeah. but I don't know it turns out Nicole I am not a tree person mm-hmm. admittedly I I just like have never really been like a huge tree person mm-hmm. I competed in the forestry event in science olympiad in like middle school but that's the closest <laughs> I've come to being a tree person <laughs> It turns out trees are really cool because you can study so much about them by like finding 400 year old trees and like drilling into them and getting yeah. entire historical records about this stuff like oh my god like i knew <laughs> that but i'd never like touched it with regards to researching a topic i was interested in yeah anyway it just made it it tickled me <laughs> trees trees are cool it turns out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> controversial okay sorry anyway um we have a whole episode called Trees are pretty cool. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, But usually we like preface that by saying now in places other than North American grasslands, (laughs) trees are pretty cool. And this is a case where we're getting to say trees in North American grasslands are cool, which Mm -hmm. completely turns what I know about like grassland ecology in North America on its head. And that's why I love it, too, because it's just new stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway. So in terms of plants, oak savannas often have higher plant diversity at a variety of scales than either prairies or forests because of the huge amount of microenvironments they create, which we just talked about. You know, they're appealing to so many different types of habitats and specialists, but they're also just creating, yeah, so many tiny micro-environments depending on the size of the bur oak or how many other young bur oaks are, are growing. So in some cases, these oak savannas support viable populations of more than 25% of all plant species within that region. Which is kind of insane. And of course, when there's a high diversity in plant species, you would kind of expect there to be a higher diversity in wildlife species too, including of course invertebrates, but also small mammals, herpetofauna, birds, all sorts of stuff. And like with most habitats, there are rare species that rely on them too. So one example I found, or several examples I found actually were butterfly species and moth species. There are some whose caterpillars need to eat bur oaks, mm-hmm. um, but there's rare species like the carner the blue butterfly, which just love savanna habitats specifically, mm-hmm. so they rely on them. And uh, as far as, like, their importance, um, I just want to point out that everybody loves to point out, everybody as in, like, scientists and people that write about these things love to point out just the aesthetic beauty of bur oak savannas, because, mm-hmm. like... They really are a park-like environment like most savannas are, and there's something about it that just makes you feel like you're going on a picnic, which I think says a lot um, and maybe is why so many people are, like, as they learn about it, becoming excited and motivated to restore these habitats because yeah. they are aesthetically gorgeous in addition to being important. Um, so, whew, that's amazing. <laughs> it's one thing to check off. It's not like it's a bog or something. You're trying to convince people to love a bog. Mm-hmm. No, it's like the, everybody's ideal environment. As far as plants, I have literally written in my notes, Rachel and Nicole tried to describe pictures of plants in an audio format. Oh, no. <laughs> I have a small list of some of the savanna indicator <laughs> species that we'd expect in these habitats. And uh, I'm going to make you look them up and try to describe them to an audio audience. Ready? Okay. Burr oak. <laughs> very tall. Very wide. No, 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 no. Well, okay. <laughs> I guess we didn't describe the bur oak. It has really big acorns that have really big curly hats on the top of the acorns. Yes. Very fuzzy. And they have very big lobed leaves. Lobed? And lobed. Lobed. <laughs> leaves. <laughs> And uh they,
0: they grow sure look in like the oaks.
1: <laughs> ways that we've described already. They sure do, Nicole. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Are you ready? Sure. Uh, lion's foot. Good luck googling that, I guess. Um try putting plant in the search. <laughs> I'm only making you look up things that I hadn't heard of before.
0: Way to be prairie centric. <laughs> okay, I don't I have none of these pictures show any kind of a scale, so I have no idea how big they are. But they sure are cute.
1: (laughs) That's a great description. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Um,
0: So they are erect, growing, (laughs) have really large leaves, and tiny, tiny flowers with very long uh, corollas, which is the part of the flower that leads down to the nectar.
1: Like a hummingbird-style flower for hummingbirds. Yeah. This picture has a bumblebee on it, though, so. Long-tongued bees are the same as hummingbirds. Mm, Okay. Sure. And the flowers are white and purple and have super long stamens. Yeah. One of the pictures I saw, I don't know if this is normal for them, had it like leaning over and drooping, like the flowers at the top of the stalk kind of drooped over and hung upside down. Are you seeing that or was that just a weird example? Uh, Yeah,
0: all the ones that I'm seeing, the flowers are all pointed downwards. Yeah, super cute.
1: A couple of plants that people listening may recognize or sound familiar at least include New Jersey tea, Jacob's Ladder, and Culver's Root. Culver's Root might be a good one to describe to people, Nicole. And uh, some foxglove species. All of these are considered savannah indicators, which I found interesting. And I'm thinking back to like where I've seen New Jersey tea before, and I do see it growing near trees sometimes. Yeah. Um, do you want to describe what Culver's Root looks like? How don't you describe what Culver's Root oh, look, okay. looks like? It's like a really, really, okay, so you know like the, the hats that gnomes wear? Yes. It's like it's like that but like the base of it is like narrower and then it's like really really tall so it's like really pointy and instead of being red it's actually a cone of very tiny white flowers that go all the way up. Sure. Thanks. Does okay. it have any
0: leaves or anything?
1: I mean it does but okay. like people don't care about the leaves Nicole. The people you want flowers. Know-
0: okay. But you just said the plant itself is cone-shaped and gets skinnier at the top okay. that's not true okay that's
1: not true it can be kind of describing tall. the flower stalk you weren't even specific <laughs> it's like a mid-sized plant as far as like prairie plants go <laughs> i don't know what the leaves look like i think wow. they're like long <laughs> <laughs> good job thanks okay and here's one more that you can look up: um, purple milkweed. Oh, like me? Okay. Me yeah, Take my phone
0: back up again. <laughs> purple milkweed. is Milkweed, but purple. Yes.
1: Basically. Thanks. It's small. I'm so glad I wasted my time purple. looking that up. I thought it would look interesting, but it's just common milkweed, but instead of pink flowers, it's purple. Hey, it's different, okay? Okay. Okay. It's not like I asked you to look up swamp milkweed when you're familiar with common milkweed, okay? It's different. Swamp
0: milkweed looks more different than purple milkweed from common milkweed.
1: No, that's not true.
0: That is true.
1: Mm, Okay, whatever. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So so that's this little plant community. Um, now we're going to meet the burr oak and look at this tree a little bit more specifically. And um, I'm really hammering in the audience participation. And by audience, I mean co-host participation today. Because... I just put my phone down. <laughs> no, 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 no. This, is, this involves your brain, not your phone. <laughs> okay. Um, because I want you to make a couple predictions as we get into this. That so number one, it's a savanna. So what disturbance or disturbances do you think drive or maintain this ecosystem? Fire. Any others? Succession. <laughs> That's not a disturbance. <laughs> that just happens <laughs> in response to disturbance <laughs> or lack of disturbance. Okay. Eh, you know, just fire. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, what predictions would you make about the bur oak and how it survives that disturbance?
0: Um, I'm, I guess being tall might help. Okay. 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 Or perhaps some thick bark. Okay. 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 How okay. fire resistant? Okay. Okay. Way okay
1: cool uh tall and thick bark are yes. nicole's predictions okay hey i think they're pretty good <laughs> those are some pretty good predictions okay 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 so <laughs> God. what and now i just feel stupid <laughs> for asking for making you participate oh
0: no i i made it that was a real prediction are you saying know, my no, prediction's it's, bad it's a real
1: prediction it's a good one <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. I guess this is still more stuff about the Burr Oaks okay. generalities. Okay. It's great. Okay, so the Burr Oak itself dominates the Oak Savannas pretty much from Canada, like up in Manitoba, all the way down to Oklahoma. Um, Texas has a weird relationship with bur Oaks, where like they just really aren't dominant at all for whatever reason. But um, the other Oak Savannas above Texas are pretty dominated by burr oaks. And in those places, the burr oak may just dominate the entire canopy by itself, or it will share the canopy dominance with chinkapin oak in the south, like us, where we are, um, or pin oak up in the north, like in the Dakotas. I like pin oaks. I, pin oaks are great. They grew like this. Yeah, yeah. Nicole just like, did like a, a, a motion-like um, putting her hands from the bottom all the way up to the top, which is like, okay, people who grow pin oaks in their yard, they usually like chop off the bottom branches of the pin oak mm-hmm. so they can mow around the tree mm-hmm. Um and therefore miss out on the beauty and majesty of a just purely natural pin oak. Yeah. So sad. Now, those savannas, <clears throat> its typical grass partner is, drumroll, Big blue stem. <laughs> Big blue stem is its favorite typical grass partner in the savannas where it dominates, which I think is fantastic. Oak woodlands. Usually there's a little bit more diversity in oaks, and sometimes there's hickories there too, but the bur oak has to share that canopy. So here's some cool things about the bur oak that help it to persist in these savannas. Number one... It's one of the most cold-tolerant of North America's oaks, so that's how it's able to be in oak savannas up in freaking Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, It also endures droughts pretty well, which helps it in these ranges where there's a lot less moisture than in the forests just to the east. And bur oak, notably, is also super long-lived – At maturity or like at the end of their lifespan, they can be three to four hundred years old. So when you have these like savanna landscapes with these massive trees, some of these trees are like literally hundreds of years old, which is also great for getting data, it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Also, the bur oak itself grows best in full sun. Which also helps us to piece together why it's a savanna plant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it can tolerate some shade short term in very specific habitats. <laughs> so it's mostly considered shade intolerant, it cannot handle growing in the shade. And one of the uh, forest service resources I picked out said that when there's sort of a deep woodland condition where the canopy is a lot more dense, what really helps oaks to start growing again is having some sort of large-scale canopy-removing disturbance. So, like, if there's a big tree fall or something that knocks down a bunch of trees, the oaks are like, oh, thank goodness, finally, and then they can start <laughs> sprouting again. Nice. So, Yeah. Um, they're really poised to be savanna plants, which I had no idea about. Um, now, as far as the oak and its relationship with wildlife, um, the fact that it has all of these acorns and produces its leaves and all of its shade and all of these cavities and stuff makes it really important to wildlife that use these habitats. So... Wildlife species, it turns out, often prefer key features of oak woodlands and savannas, even over other habitat types that we tend to associate them with. For example, um, in Missouri, in the Ozarks, uh, there was a study that showed big brown bats, eastern red bats, evening bats, and tricolored bats all preferred savannas and oak woodland habitats over closed canopy forests. And those are like forest animals, mostly. Yeah, those well, ha- obviously they're not. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, that's what I'm saying. Ah, it's crazy. These habitats also provide the right habitat for a huge mix of grassland and canopy nesting bird species of conservation concern, like blue-winged warblers, eastern towies, eastern peewees, field sparrows, prairie warblers, etc., etc., which in those same studies in Missouri were much more abundant in those oak habitats like the oak savannas and woodlands than in closed canopy forests. Which also surprised me. I've always thought of eastern wood peewees, for example, of mm-hmm. being like a deep closed canopy forest bird. Yeah. Of course, some rare and declining bird species also rely on these sort of uh, disturbance or successional habitats. And several studies have demonstrated not only the importance of oak savannas to those species, but that even bird species that are known to prefer mature, closed canopied interior forests benefit from oak savannas being nearby in the landscape for their juvenile members of the species. Mm. Because it's somehow much easier for them to forage and avoid predation in savannas and open habitats than in the dense canopies. Interesting. I know, right? Okay, so um, forage. Let's talk about forage. oak acorns and stems are consumed by a lot of wildlife and livestock species. Um, it turns out that acorns from white oaks, including the bur oak, which is a type of white oak, white oaks usually have like the big, like, um, wavy leaves instead of like the pointy oak leaves. Okay. Um, they're preferred by humans too, I guess. So like usually when you hear of, um, settlers or indigenous people making like acorn flour and stuff like that, it's bur oaks or other white oaks that are prevalent in that environment. Uh, The Cheyenne of Montana, for example, ate Baroque acorns in a mush mixed with buffalo fat, which sounds kind of good if I wasn't very allergic to buffalo fat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, As far as wildlife, the acorns are eaten by black bears, deer, cattle, goats, squirrels, cottontails. The list goes on and on. And I, I have a few like four noteworthy categories of animals that rely on Baroques that I want to just mention. And there's some really cool examples of these interactions that the Forest Service again pointed out. Turns out I haven't really gotten a chance to use Forest Service resources often, (laughs) and I'm just in love with their resources. So ungulates. In Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota, um, they found deer and elk browsing Baroque seedlings while taking cover under their branches, and bison trails carve their way around the oaks. So all of these animals are using the habitat for cover, Mm. but are also foraging not only on acorns, but on, like, baby plants, baby oak plants, which are apparently very palatable. (laughs) Um, in Riding Mountain National Park in Manitoba, Canada, um, ungulates browse the bur oak stands more than all seven other types of woodlands found in that area. Wow. Yeah, um, so out of the eight total types of woodlands, they they use the bur oaks most. And in that region, um, they're browsed by like moose, deer, even rabbits. They love to eat the seedlings. <laughs> Other category, small mammals, which, like, are very important, and um, I you cannot understate how important they are. Uh, so they've been observed scatter-hoarding bur oak acorns. Uh, the Forest Service specifically called out Manhattan, Kansas for studies on this. <laughs> I get kind of a tickle every time Kanza or Manhattan, Kansas comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, white-footed and deer mice and other little small rodents are abundant in bur oak communities. And one study where they live-trapped eastern fox and eastern gray squirrels, uh, they found that when they know about bur oak acorns already, they prefer eating bur oak acorns over black walnut walnuts and shagbark hickory nuts.
0: Huh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Which surprised me. Question.
0: They're oaks. They probably produce a lot of acorns. Yeah. But they don't like shade. So I guess they're just relying on these animals to spread their seeds outside of their canopy.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, there's some pretty close tie-ins with that, like, caching and hoarding behavior yeah. and even fire resistance for seedlings. So there's some research suggesting that by burying acorns further away in the landscape, um, they are actually placing those acorns out of, like, the lethal zone for fire and i'll get in more more into the fire aspect later on but it turns out the seedlings are really vulnerable to fire and so are the acorns mm-hmm. so they'll just they'll just burn up yeah um and so yeah not only are they spreading the oaks further out by doing that they are literally protecting the babies from fire which is their most slash only vulnerable stage
0: interesting
1: right yeah <laughs>
0: how, are th- how are they spreading them beyond the reach of fire
1: by burying them in the ground. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, like
0: the the saplings,
1: so I guess is what I was talking oh, about. Sorry. Oh, the saplings are a whole other thing, Nicole. Okay. Basically, okay. oh, we're going to get into it. Don't you worry. <laughs> so I guess I guess the rodents aren't necessarily helping the saplings mm-hmm. resist fire, but like as acorns, that like sprouting and germination stage is their most vulnerable state. Okay. So, um the fact that they're like buried under the leaf, lethal temperature zone of the ground fires really, really helps them. On the same
0: page. Yeah. You know? I was like,
1: I don't, I don't, I don't understand, <laughs> but I got it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, freaking, freaking cool. Okay. So that's small mammals. There's, you know, tons of examples that I didn't list because we can't talk forever about this stuff. Anyway, <laughs> game birds, which I'm talking about because, um, People care about game birds like turkey. Oh, my gosh. Turkey, Nicole, freaking love bur savannas. Yeah. Holy crud. Um, so, first of all, they do provide cover and forage for sharp-tailed grouse, too. But we've got to talk about the importance to turkey because there's tons of studies about it. In Oklahoma, for example, wild turkeys use bur for roosting. Um, in a South Dakota, because, you know, turkey Turkey prefer to roost in woodlands or in trees. Mm-hmm. In a South Dakota study, wild turkey hens preferred woodlands over grasslands for nesting. And out of those woodland nests, um, most of them were next to bur oak directly or under like a bush next to a bur oak. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they will nest very near them, and it's clear the habitats are are offering uh, important nesting cover for the hens, for roosting, and for the chicks as well, but also like foraging space with the savannas, um, with the grassland element of the savannas. Mm -hmm. Also, in a fall study in 1985, bur oak was found in the crops of 80% of wild turkeys that they studied. That's insane. So they're eating it a lot. (laughs) Yes. And they compared it across years, and it looks like... Um, the only factor in how much they consume it is whether or not the oaks are actually producing acorns that year. <laughs> yeah.
0: I just want to share a really quick story. The first time I ever saw turkey roosting in a tree, I was leading a hike with a bunch of like novice birders and they were very excited and we were looking at all the birds and they're like, what's that? And I looked up and I just saw this amorphous blob, two of them, in the top of a tree. <laughs> and I was like, I have no idea what the hell is that and i was like it's not a hawk it's too fat and i was just like staring at it for so long and i was like oh it's turkey <laughs> <laughs> like it took me a solid like two minutes to figure out what the heck this bird was
1: in the top of this tree oh no <sighs> i feel like that's happened to the best of us especially when it's like twilight hours yes it
0: was right at twilight so they had See? like probably just gone up there to roost and yeah They were just backlit, right?
1: Black blobs in
0: the top of a tree, and I was so confused.
1: (laughs) Things look extra wild, and like your imagination goes crazy in low light conditions too, though. Yes. Have I told you about the time I took a hike and like we got my group got freaked out by this like weird shape out in the prairie? And I pulled up my binoculars, and it was a birdhouse. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, (laughs) oh man. Um, But yeah, okay. Last category is other birds, which, I mean, I've mentioned some other birds already, but I'm going to mention even more other birds (laughs) (laughs) Um, because, yeah, it's extremely important. The plant and the savanna is extremely important to bird communities, and oak savannas specifically have shown more species and more abundance of bird than prairie or woodland in a Minnesota study that looked at those comparisons. Um, the oak produces cavities that are used by nesting birds like bluebirds and woodpeckers, etc., etc. In the Black Hills of South Dakota, white-breasted nuthatches, it turns out, were found to love bur oaks so much that they were using 50% to 100% of all cavities in bur oaks. <laughs> oh, wow. So, like, some of the bur oaks were just nothing but nuthatches. They love them so much. And... Baroques seem especially important to woodpeckers. Um, You probably are aware that woodpeckers in winter eat a lot of mast, which is like the fruit of trees, basically. Um, And some woodpeckers, like the red-headed woodpecker, eat almost entirely or mostly hard mast-like acorns. And it turns out that uh, red-headed woodpeckers will just straight up leave Kansas when bur oak acorn crops fail in the state. Dang. Yeah, like they'll just migrate out of Kansas. Also, yellow-bellied sap suckers frequently drill them for sap. So they are providing some pretty important resources. Um, in most woodpeckers, they're not, you know, making up a majority of or a significant portion of the diet necessarily, but for at least some species, it's clearly a really important part of their environment. So yeah, now I think we have a full or partially full and expanded grasp on just like how diverse and amazing and beautiful oak savannas are. Yes. Like... What a cool thing. And also, I've hinted at it many times, fire, of course, is the driving disturbance that maintains it or that shapes the ecosystem. So in order to start talking about the ecology, which we're going to move into now, um, we're going to talk about what happens to an oak savanna without fire. And then we'll talk about how the frick Bur oaks survive all the fires. <laughs> so, so here's what happens: what succession happens to an oak savanna when there is no fire. So, first of all, in prairies, it's pretty common for bur oak to start establishing throughout a prairie if the time between fires is at least ten years. They've actually calculated um, that along that edge of the Great Plains. Bur oak invades the prairie at an average rate of one foot per year when there's not frequent fire. One foot per year is the invasion of bur oaks marching into the prairie. Ban the bur oak. Bur <laughs> oak. <laughs> yep. Um, this has been studied in Kansas, of course. Not to, like, always be talking about Kansas. I just find it incredibly relevant because it's where I live. Um, but uh, it was indeed found to increase its range uh, during any times of decreased fire frequency in our prairies. This is a thing I'm going to describe a, l- a little bit later, and I'm just going to make the mystery hang in the air for a minute like a horrible person. The reason that burr oaks can really quickly invade a prairie also has to do with bur oak grubs. All right. <laughs> which are not insects. They are a weird woody structure that develops on the soil surface and basically the minute there's not fire they sprout into new trees nice i'll describe what that is and how that happens later
0: it's like a cypress knee but not in the water
1: <laughs> maybe it, it's it okay well hang on i will explain it it's it's basically um you know when you were like how do the baby trees survive the fire um well they just get burned down a lot so, like, once the once the once they get planted deep enough or get deep enough in the ground, they survive the fires. Yeah, they get burned off, and then they get burned off, and then they get burned off. And if they just keep getting burned off, then they just form this grub in the ground, which is basically like a baby tree that's just been burned to death its entire life. <laughs> and the second there's not fire, it's like, oh, yeah, and it sprouts into a tree. So it's this, like growthy knee in the ground that is a baby tree's attempts to exist. <laughs> yeah, so basically once the fire stops, if there's grubs in the ground, they immediately sprout up. And that's one reason they can invade so fast. Okay, now, so when a burrow reaches about 12 years old, or a little older, they tolerate repeated fire and at that stage, it persists pretty indefinitely in the savanna or the, the open woodland when there is fire. But without fire, the already established bur oak savannas and woodlands get replaced by other deciduous species that don't like fire but love shade. So basically without that fire, it allows those other things that are vulnerable to fire to move in and... Usually, they're a woodland or forest species, and so they're fine with shade, and they just crowd out the existing bur oaks and replace it into some other type of woodland or deep forest habitat. Eventually, they've estimated about 80 years or so, the large mature bur oaks in that succeeded savanna that's been replaced by the deciduous woodland become weakened by wood-rot fungi in their shade-killed lower branches that have been killed off by the other trees and die off. (laughs) Also, really interestingly, in those dense woodlands, most of these trees die off because they get snapped apart by windstorms within like 100 and 110 years. Which kind of blew my mind because I immediately thought, well, what about this doesn't happen in prairies and savannas? But I guess not, because in those conditions, they grow up into these big, huge, bulking trees that can withstand the wind of the prairie. But in a woodland, when they're weakened, mm-hmm. they just snap off by winds. Dang. <laughs> yeah. So they just get replaced. There's a lot of really sad stories about the succession happening. Oh, no. For example, in Wisconsin, um, the savannah has gone extinct, and they, they have... Uh, Evaluated the extinction and realized that after evaluating the histories of land use and climate and such, European settlement and the end of frequent burning by American Indians um, facilitated that successional change that just obliterated the, the bur oaks. Reports indicate that bur oak itself fails, just cannot reproduce successfully once a tree canopy. Um, reaches about like 75% cover so there's a a really definite threshold of shading out um, where the canopy becomes so dense that they just literally cannot reproduce at all because the young trees cannot grow and at that point it's kind of over for the baroque in that habitat other forms of succession in these habitats involve disturbance one thing is tree falls. Like I mentioned in the beginning, if there's a big tree fall that opens up some space in a canopy, that is actually completely necessary for Baroques to to colonize. I almost said cannibalize. Oh. <laughs> for Baroques to uh, colonize a woodland area. It's literally considered a function of disturbance and not just relationship that you just notice like it Mm -hmm. it literally needs to have tree falls to open up the canopy the other thing is browsing um it turns out uh livestock and native ungulates eat the youngest burroaks so much that it really stops them from growing when there's a lot of grazing um which is an interesting point because uh for example in one coal mine restoration site in kansas Baroque stems within the reach of cattle were browsed to the ground every year. So that's preventing the growth of those, what are they called, grubs, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also just stopping them Mm -hmm. from establishing altogether. And in Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota, researchers looked into this impact of grazing and uh, came to the conclusion that it was also due to the loss of large carnivores, in addition to the, the introduction of livestock and the heavy browsing by native ungulates because of the lack of large carnivores that limited the recruitment of new baby bur oaks. So all the existing bur oaks out there are just aging out because of all the heavy grazing. Um, in that particular park, Wind Cave National Park, recruitment of new bur oaks peaked in the 1870s but was basically non-existent after the 1890s. Of course, land managers are aware of this now and trying to fix that, Mm -hmm. um, but that's pretty significant. Yeah. Um, So really, the only thing that Baroque needs is fire. (laughs) So how does Baroque survive fire? Um, Well, you are correct in your predictions. (laughs) Uh, I guess height... Can help. <laughs> well, okay. Here's here's <laughs> my thing with
0: the height. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's just grasses around and you're really tall and you're taller than the grasses, then like the fire's just gonna sweep through, sweep by really fast, mm-hmm. and like you won't catch on fire.
1: Yeah, no, that's a legit thing. And your lower branches aren't going to be as susceptible. Like, yeah. that's legit. And we know that their um, grass friend that tends to coexist with them is a very tall grass. Yeah. Because, you know, they're on the edge of the tall grass prairie, basically, or mm-hmm. what was the tall grass prairie. Um, in some places, hey, it just has to get sad, and, you know? That's fine. So, yeah, I I think I didn't, like, specifically come across that. But, I mean, it sounds pretty legit to me. They do grow pretty fast, but the, the dense bark does help. So when a fire sweeps through a habitat with a bur oak, here's what immediately happens. Mature bo- bur oak trees are just not damaged by fire. If bur oak trees are only three feet tall, they still may survive. <clears throat> but they're less likely to. Um, anything lower than that is a, a goner. In these conditions, bur oak is considered a fire resistor. And usually these are considered like low severity fires. They're not burning super, super hot because it's yeah. like a typical grass fire that just kind of comes through quickly. And once the fire sweeps through, the bur oak has a ton of regeneration strategies if it did become damaged by the fire because it was extra hot or something happened or it was a baby tree. Those strategies include, for example, um, having dormant buds at the base of the trunk that are protected from the fire by being below the soil surface or like protected by root collars. I don't know what that is, but all I know is it protects them. (laughs) And if the the main stem of the tree does get killed by fire, one or more of those dormant buds will start growing and they'll just keep producing tree. Nice. Yep. Um, They also have stuff like... Sobels, which are just a shoot arising straight from underground stem tissue, and root sprouts, and a sprouting root crown, and of course, grubs, which I already explained. Now, what's kind of crazy about the bur oak, Nicole, is that it turns out, um, not only is the bur oak built to survive the fires, it's built to make fires happen, (laughs) I've usually heard people talk about thick bark with regards to things like the cottonwood tree because, you know, Kansas, state tree, people love that thing. I learned a lot about why that actually is a thing. (laughs) And maybe (laughs) you already knew this, but this was kind of new information to me. The, The reason it helps is because it's insulating their vascular tissue from high temperatures. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that makes sense. And that guards the trees from fire damage. I guess the cambium, like the vascular tissue, has to reach like 140 degrees Fahrenheit in a bur oak for at least a full minute to kill vascular plant tissue. And uh, in Illinois, uh, researchers studied what happened to a bur oak under these fire conditions and found that the, the cambium temperature was under that threshold by like six degrees Fahrenheit during the fires um, with this thick bark. It's like when it's a, like, large mature tree, it might be, like, 1.3 to 2.9 inches thick. So we're not talking about, like, I don't know, a foot of bark. We're talking about, like, inches of bark. Mm-hmm. Just, just like, one or two inches. And that's enough to really insulate it from those fires. So that's pretty cool. And 12 to 15 years old is when researchers usually say they can survive repeated burning. So that's neat. Uh, they... Develop that really, really quickly, actually, even more quickly than other oaks because they're just built to thrive in fire. Mm-hmm. In Wisconsin, researchers studied a reconstruction of fire history in an oak savanna remnant. And they had both white oak, which is a species, and burr oak, also a species, um, <laughs> of similar ages where the white oak trees recorded fires happening in the bark because they got damaged that bur oaks showed no evidence of. So, even other oak species that are very similar to the bur oak will be damaged by fires that the bur oak isn't touched by and um that's including very young trees. So, young trees of the white oak get knocked back by fires that trees of the same age in the bur oak are totally cool with. That's really cool. Yeah, it's amazing. So the two to three inches of bark is that including not not even three inches like you said two point nine yeah okay fine that's basically three <laughs> inches one and a half to three inches of bark
0: okay the one and a half to three inches of bark is that measuring from like the top because I saw the the picture that you sent uh their bark is kind of grooved so is that like from the top of the groove or like the bottom of the groove or like
1: i don't know how that's measured i mean i would assume that they're measuring the smallest portion because that's the protective layer yeah so maybe it juts out even beyond that Mm -hmm. but i don't know for sure okay tree people need to tell me i don't often delve into trees And then of course, baby trees that get killed off, blah, 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 said that before. Yes. And as far as the acorns go, there's been so many studies on baby brand new seedlings sprouting, and there's so much variation in the results based on like what habitat it's in and like other factors at the site that like people don't, scientists don't have any like blanket statements they can make about like what conditions are good or bad for the acorns in terms of fire. The only thing we do know across the, the board, is that fires actually suppress the growth of brand new seedlings, which is why getting buried is very beneficial for them. So so here's where things like took a weird turn that I was not anticipating. So bur oaks, Nicole, burr oaks love fire so much that they are not only built to withstand it, they are built to start and spread fire. Holy shit, this stuff is... <laughs> Fascinating. So so here's the thing. Oak litter and woody debris have a lot of traits that make them really flammable and really important to spreading fire. In fact, if you compare the bur oak fuel bed to other hardwoods, it's like pretty dramatically different how... Like, happily and easily, the bur oak burns. Mm. So, typical hardwoods produce really thin leaves that stick to the forest floor, and that kind of traps in moisture, and it decomposes pretty quickly. There's basically no air pockets to help dry it out because it's just, like, flattened down. Like, we've all seen this. If anybody has seen like compressed leaves and you've like tried to scrape them up and realized how thick the layer is, mm-hmm. like that's your typical hardwood tree leaf litter, right? And also, uh, woody debris from those typical hardwoods decays fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, <laughs> bur oak leaves are thick and rigid and they have an irregular shape normally, but when they dry, they curl up and become like this really three-dimensional rigid shape. And so that all does several things. They dry super efficiently, they decompose very slowly, and they create a really like loose fuel bed. That carries fire really easily through it and also allows the wind to scoop up leaves and blow them into other unburned parts of the surrounding <laughs> savannas. Yeah. <laughs> kind of amazing. Um, those leaves are so like rigid and resistant to breaking down that they will stay curled and preserved even through snow and after snow melt. So they can be this important fuel for spring burns. After all of the moisture and snow of winter, Mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy. And also, the woody debris of the oaks resists decay too because of their chemical components. So that means that uh, it's providing these very long-lasting fuel resources for fires compared to any other hardwood in the region anyway. Yeah, so it really... Makes sense. Why bur oaks need fire in order to create that habitat? It's because like they are built for it, and nothing else. Like to some pretty extreme degrees, and uh, that's just freaking amazing. I can't even like begin to tell you how amazing it is to me. It's very cool. Yes, 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 yes. Last part of our episode is what happened to the oak savannas. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, uh, Nicole, knowing all of this that you know about oak savannas, the Baroque savannas, and what they need to survive and how they change when disturbances change, what conclusions do you come to? Uh,
0: You already mentioned change in fire regimes, so fires becoming less frequent and then succession just kind of taking over them. And I would not be surprised at all if that's like a main reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. And also, I had I, I mentioned this already, too, but the introduction of so many grazing herbivores yeah. and the loss of predators. But why did the fire change? I mean, And there's a lot of reasons, but... Yeah. <laughs> so, but, like...
0: Farmland and, and rangeland, I'm assuming?
1: Um, yeah, some of it's conversion to, you know, building so many, like, um, permanent European-style settlements mm-hmm. or, like, railroads or wh- agriculture. Like, that's... That's big. Mm-hmm. So this this part of the research made me kind of mad. <laughs> because, yeah, the the biggest cause of the loss of fire that has resulted in just the obliteration of oak savannas is the, the loss of American Indian burning.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, you mentioned that earlier, too. Yeah, in
1: addition to the conversion of land to ag use, um, the livestock introductions specifically – and active fire suppression mm-hmm. because European folks that, uh, settled the plains and the oak savannas actively suppressed fires mm-hmm. for a very long time. Even fires that would start naturally, they yeah. would suppress. But what I, what I didn't realize is how much information we actually have about the fire management system of American Indians. And what really pissed me off was realizing how much I have either been lied to about the importance of American Indian ecological management Mm -hmm. or it's been overlooked. Um, People just don't know about it. It I also got really angry about the institutional way that this part of our ecological history has been completely wiped. I will call out specifically um, one local museum that I used to work at, the Great Plains Nature Center, that says that prairie fires historically were burned and caused by lightning and sometimes American Indians. And that is the only time Native peoples are even mentioned in the entire museum.
0: Yeah, people always talk about historic prairies being burned by lightning. And it's like, it doesn't make sense that that would be the only way that they're burned.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And did you know that we have had for a very long time data showing the frequency of those different types of burns? Yeah. Because I didn't know that that data, I mean, I assumed we had ways of estimating it, but like the records are strikingly quantitative wow there there's a i went down a whole rabbit hole from a study that was done in like the 40s that outlined exactly how they found all this information mm-hmm. because when i started reading these stats i was like how do they know this like is yeah why was i never taught this is it because the way that they found this out is like less reliable than this citation is giving it credit for but it's rigorously scientific and we also have the oral traditions of the people that still live today that are alive because they aren't past tense people they are current present tense people Mm -hmm. but for some reason um Uh, us westerners like to completely discount those oral traditions as not scientific enough but we have our scientific data to back this up that meets that standard so that's what infuriates me like we've known this since the 40s where's the excuse it's just complete erasure of -hmm. this part of our history so i'm gonna tell you what i learned about this and i i shortened it a little bit but i thought it was really important to discuss uh and i thought why not now uh, even though I've been talking for a long time already, so maybe maybe this is a topic for another episode at some point. <laughs> so these studies have specifically outlined the important maintenance work of American Indians on prairies and oak savannas in the Midwest. Prairies pre-European settlement uh, may have been burned nearly every year in some places. And in Central North America, in one study, the one that I read in this region, um, they found that all but one of 247 historic prairie fires with known ignition sources were the result of human activity. So where we knew the ignition source, Mm -hmm. only one out of those studied prairie fires was natural and not the result of Native people.
0: That's insane.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Studies in the Black Hills suggest that the Oglala Sioux used fire more frequently than the Cheyenne, Kiowa, and Crow tribes because, go figure, different people groups have different management strategies, and we can track that throughout recorded history too. Mm -hmm. So before 1770, the time between large fires in the Devil's Tower National Monument area averaged 27 years From 1770 to 1900, the average time between large fires was 14 years. And fire frequency increased near the time when the Oglala Sioux took over control of the area where it had previously been controlled by those other tribes I mentioned. So we can directly see the change in fire frequency correlating to the change in tribal boundaries. And that's because the fires were caused by people not by lightning. Like, lightning happens on the prairie. I'm not trying to discount that. I mean, farmers and ranchers have lightning insurance on their cows for a reason. Yeah. Um. But it is nothing short of pure erasure of these people groups to say that most of them were natural Um because, you know, for 12,000 years, these people lived here. Mm. <laughs> they continue to live here. And they've managed the landscape and are managing parts of our landscape today. Mm. And thank God they're being given more control over public lands and managing them um, now more than ever. Uh, it's being given back to them by the government. Yeah. And that's uh, freaking cool. It needs to happen more often. Yeah. So they they meant. They mentioned that the Oglala Sioux had come over from more of the prairie forest border area. So in that area where there's much more oak savannas, um, they had utilized fire uh, to drive and kill animals, and their fire management system was much different. Um, So after 1900, the average time between large fires increased dramatically to 42 years in the wow. study of Central North America. Um, the last area-wide fire had occurred in 1937, at the time of the study, which was in the 40s, when the area was already settled by Europeans. So, yeah. Um, in an oak savanna remnant in uh, Kenosha County, Wisconsin, which I've mentioned before, 53% of fire scars represented dormant season fires, which suggests a human ignition source because late summer is when lightning-caused fires happen in that area of Wisconsin. So they reconstructed fire history from the cross-sections of bur oak and white oak trees, cut down to make way for an industrial park, (laughs) and found um, that these trees were uh, between like 150 to 190 years old. And during the pre-European settlement era... Fires were returning about every 3.7 years, whereas during the peak of European settlement, uh, the mean of fire intervals was every 19 years. Wow. So pretty direct evidence um, that a huge portion of fires happening in these regions were from people.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And, you know, when European settlers arrived on this landscape and were like, wow, this beautiful country that we've arrived at, that God has given us, that is now ours for the taking um, and to live and thrive on. And we're going to become so connected to a deep sense of place with this land. the land they fell in love with was the land managed by the people groups that, you know, had lived there for 12,000 years. Yeah. So um, that's a huge reason why it changed and that cannot be understated. Yep. Um, and obviously European settlement, we know how that changed things because we've already talked about it. Uh, the killing off of large carnivores. So there's lots of things in addition to um, the loss of control over land management um, or the change in control of land management from people groups. So between fire suppression, logging, land clearing, Roads, railroads, etc., cetera, et cetera. Depending on the region you're looking at, there are very, very specific studies that can, like, note for note, show exactly which regional human impacts caused the loss of the oak savannas. Um, there's, there's even a report on the Konza Prairie, which I won't Aww. maybe get into. But I, I will say that um, settlement activities that likely contributed – to limiting fire around Konza Prairie and uh, maybe even suppressing fire efforts um, was construction, expansion of towns, farming, grazing by livestock, and just general fire suppression. So again, we know very specifically how (laughs) European settlements affected different parts of these landscapes. Which is very sad. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to end on a sad note. I'm going (laughs) to end with... um, can Midwestern oak savannas be restored with updated fire management? And the short answer is, yeah, totally, but not just with fire management, because it depends on where it is, right? If it's a prairie being taken over by oaks or attempting to be taken over by oaks, assuming there's not livestock there grazing it down anyway, that's a different strategy than taking these oak savannas that have just straight up turned into woodlands, which is what happened to most of them, Mm -hmm. and trying to just burn it. Because as we've discussed, you cannot just burn a typical hardwood forest and turn it into a savanna. The habitat, the ecosystem, the ecology, every facet of it has changed and not even the bur oak can survive in those places. So it has to be a lot more... Uh, labor-intensive. You have to manually push trees away. You have to encourage grass growth and burn frequently. It's very involved, and that's kind of daunting. But again, the good news is people that know oak savannas exist really like oak savannas and are very motivated to bring back that ecosystem, and we are seeing more and more efforts to restore those things. And I would really hope that we would see some of those efforts here in Kansas too, because that is a historic part of our Kansas border, um, that transition zone from tallgrass prairie, which we're also desperately trying to save, uh, into a beautiful, vibrant, diverse savanna ecosystem. Um, I would like to see more of that, and maybe, maybe we will someday. Landowners. If you've got some remnant oak savannas, you can learn more about how to restore it and how to recognize it by going to oaksavannas.org. <laughs> um, there's some great resources there. But yeah, that's that's the end of my oak savannah story. Beautiful. Was
0: that your main resource oaksavannas.org?
1: Um, No, the main resource was the Forest Service, actually. (laughs) Um, But oaksavannas.org does have some really good stuff. And they actually cited some of the same studies that were used by the Forest Service. Um, The Forest Service has an entire um, publication that's devoted to um, the effects of fire and fire management. And so that was an invaluable resource. Um, to really dive into this and some of the specific interactions with Baroques. I did cite some of the specific studies that I found and looked at that had some of this more compelling information, Um, but I'll put the the two primary sources in the link of this episode. Cool. In the link
0: of this episode?
1: In the link? It went in the description of this episode.
0: Perfect thanks for listening the best biome is produced through our nonprofit grass and groupies dedicated to inspiring the conservation of grasslands in the show notes you can find our website phone number and social media accounts text call or tweet your suggestions fan mail or hate mail if you enjoyed the show and want to support us tell your friends about us leave a review on podchaser or apple podcasts we couldn't do this without your support see you again in two weeks
1: Oak savannas, oaky oak savannas, I want a Kansas savanna, savanna.